0: Thank you for downloading the sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand and turn to John chapter 3. We're going to pick up at verse 9, although I think I'll read from verse 1 through 17. John chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The Wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, But do not know where it comes from and where it is going, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless us as we return to your word. Father, nourish us, strengthen us, build us up. May all of our thoughts and meditations be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So we return to the scene with Nicodemus. We went through the first eight verses last time, and now we pick up at verse nine. And remember who Nicodemus is. He's he's not just a Pharisee, but he's a ruler of Israel. He's a scribe. He is a well-connected leader in Israel. And Jesus uh, has just told, remember, Nicodemus, uh, who it is that will see and enter into the kingdom of God. And it will be those who are what? Those who are born again. Uh, There must be a second birth as significant or we would probably say more significant than the first, Uh, that is accomplished uh, by the Spirit of God working in a man's heart, changing it from unbelieving to believing, hard to soft, from stone to flesh, uh, from dead to alive. And without that work, which God alone can do, uh, any person will be left to die in their sins this is the teaching of scripture. This is the the very heart of the Christian faith. God must work before any man will truly believe from the heart. All of this, you remember, was not easy for Nicodemus to accept. Uh, Nicodemus was a works righteousness Pharisee, right? So he had elevated and, and ambitious thoughts about his own power. Um, he, he took, when, when Jesus mentioned the new birth, he took Jesus very literally. How can a man be born when he is old? How, he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus then again explains that the sovereign spirit freely blows about like the wind giving new birth to those that the Father chose before the foundation of the world. But Nicodemus is still confused, isn't he? He says in verse 9, how can these things be? How can this be? I mean, packed into that is, I'm a Pharisee. I have studied the Word of God. I am a scribe. I know what is written. And this... this. This has nothing to do with what we've concluded from the scriptures. How can these things be? He's an expert in God's law. He's a conservative. He's a believer in the resurrection from the dead. He's also a ruler of the people. He's sitting on the Sanhedrin. If Nicodemus has missed the point of the scriptures, then likely no Pharisees have gotten it right. None of them. And none of them had. So an application we can make of this right from the start, which fits in nicely with the Sunday school lesson, is that learned men, very well-trained men, men in high places may be very ignorant. PhD does not give any man infallible knowledge, and in most cases a PhD just gives them overconfidence right? We call that pride, right? So that they, they make um, experts in many fields will make proclamations about things that no man could possibly even know. But think of Nicodemus. He's exhibiting ignorance about the very ABCs of saving faith. He's uh, he's like an astronomer who doesn't know he should look up into the night sky to observe the stars. That's how far off he is. This expert in religion and the scriptures hears Jesus speak of God's sovereign action and man's salvation, and his response is an ignorance. How could these things, how, I mean, how could that be? He had completely missed the bus, which again proves uh, what I was saying last time. Spiritual things must be appraised by those who are spiritual, those with the Spirit of God. Those without the Spirit may make a good showing in external religion, but they know nothing about true life in God. Now don't be surprised if you find ignorance in the church like that of Nicodemus denominational leaders, celebrity pastors, right? writers of books, pastors of tall steeple churches, pastors of short steeple churches. Right? And keep, keeping in the context of the passage, the work of the Spirit is one area where Nicodemus has had many you know, successors. How many through the ages have mistakenly thought the scriptures taught works righteousness? How many? I mean, the descendants of the Pharisees are still very much uh, active and alive. How many have substituted works for faith as the instrument of justification? Many. Many, 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 many. I mean, and I'm, I mean the, the easy answer to that is Roman Catholicism, which just bakes it in. But, but evangelicalism and the Reformed faith is rife with this. Federal vision smacks of this. Many have gone that route because the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Yet, (laughs) I always feel like I I have to qualify things to death, right? You say one thing, you have to qualify it because everybody's thinking, yeah, well, Dion, you're the pastor and you're ignorant. And then you have to correct that. And then yet, you know, and and I am ignorant. Um, Compared to God, all men are ignorant but don't be proud and take away from what I'm saying that you can't trust anyone in positions of authority because they may be ignorant, right? Uh, and education does not furnish a man with the Holy Spirit. That's true. But there are men in the church who have the Holy Spirit who have been educated, right? There are also men who have the Holy Spirit who possess access to the very wisdom of God who have no education whatsoever, and that's true wisdom. Uh, look, And so look to those who demonstrate their faith by their love for God's word, by their service to the body of Christ, by the fruitfulness of the things that they, they do, by their selflessness. Look for the fruit of the Spirit. Now, to Nicodemus' how can these things be? Jesus says... Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Ouch. That's a stinging rebuke. I mean, Nicodemus ought to have known these things about the Spirit's work. First, because he was a student of Scripture. And second, because he was a teacher of of that Scripture to Israel. If the teachers miss the whole point of the Scripture, how can the students of those teachers hope to make any progress? And on the flip side of the coin, if the teacher is knowledgeable of Scripture, the student ought to take it in, to believe it, and take action upon it. Well, should Nicodemus have known about the Spirit's work? Having only the Old Testament, should he have known about the Spirit's work? I mean, is Jesus expecting too much of Nicodemus here? Should he have known about the Spirit's work? Well, of course he should have known about the Spirit's work. Right? Is it there in the Old Testament? Ezekiel 26, or 36, 26 to 27, which I read last week, right? I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Right there is the spirit revealed, the spirit as as new birther, right Right there in Ezekiel. But of course, the Pharisees were caught up in all the peripheries and the exceptions and the, the laws that they built around the laws and the oral traditions of their fathers. And they were ignorant of the scriptures, but they should have known this. It's all there in Ezekiel 36. We could go to many, many other places, but Nicodemus should have known these things. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. We could talk about the circumcision of the heart as that work of the Spirit making new and and giving new birth. And so Jesus is telling Nicodemus that he has missed the very, the very simple heart of Scripture. And amazingly, he has overlooked the very heart of the work of God with mankind, the very heart of what God does with, with men. And Jesus then goes on, he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony you there is plural, so he's going beyond just Nicodemus. I think he's incorporating Israel, at least the Pharisees. And notice also that he uses the plural we. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and what we have seen. Some say he means himself in John the Baptist. Others, himself, and the Old Testament prophets. Others, himself, and all those born by the Spirit. Some say it's himself and the Father. Others say he's using the royal we. Right? So he really just means uh, I. Um, I think it's that. I think it's the last one. But he could easily be speaking of himself and his Father, right, who are one, and he's He's uh, drawing him into this. Regardless, the reference is to himself, so that he appears to be saying this: I'm not like other teachers, only reciting back the things that I have learned from some other teacher. I am speaking of what I know, because I am knowledge. Right? I, I am no ordinary prophet, and I have been one, uh, I have been with. You know, and with the Father, I am speaking of the things I knew before the stars existed in the skies. Not like you Pharisees who just get excited about what some rabbi said a few hundred years ago. No, I am the logos. I am wisdom. And so I speak of what I know and what I've seen. And then his phrase ends with another rebuke for Nicodemus, and you do not accept our testimony. Now there's a remarkable sort of implication of what Jesus says here. He, he remarks that he is teaching and, uh, and people are rejecting his teaching. Jesus is teaching, the Logos is teaching, Um, God is teaching them directly through the mouth of this final prophet, right? This is God in the flesh, God teaching, and even still, what's happening? He's being rejected. He's being rejected. Calvin concludes that we ought not be surprised at unbelief if men would not receive Christ's testimony. It is no wonder if they will not receive ours. Right. If 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 very God is speaking to them and they reject it, um, we ought to get ready to experience the same thing when we're sharing the gospel, when we're teaching that which is written in the Word. Uh, which, is, which is to say what Jesus has already been teaching about in this third chapter, right? That if the Spirit doesn't work, there's no possibility of salvation, not even if Jesus himself is the preacher and teacher and the deliverer of the word. If the Spirit doesn't work, it's a no-go. Eloquence, right, strength of argument, handsomeness, uh, smoke and mirrors, sophistication, uh, will never lead to conversions. None of that will lead to conversions, which is, which is why you and I should not be afraid to witness. We shouldn't be afraid to witness. Um, just share the word. Just mumble through the word. That's all we need to do. Tell people something from God's word, and if the Spirit wills it, it'll penetrate their heart. And if not, it won't. It doesn't matter how well you say it. It doesn't matter how tall you are. It doesn't matter if you're male or female, right? It just doesn't matter. If the Spirit doesn't work, it won't penetrate the heart. Then Jesus says this, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Now, there's a lot of argument about what this means. What are the earthly things? What are the heavenly things? I think the easiest way to understand this is just to keep it in the context of the passage. Um, Jesus is saying something along these lines. If I tell you about the basics, like regeneration by the Spirit, God's sovereignty and salvation, if I tell you the basics, God has to work or no man's going to be saved. If I tell you what I told you in the first part of John 3, how will you believe when I move on to something more difficult and more and and more with more grandeur, right? Something bigger. So in using earthly and heavenly, I don't think he means to say unspiritual and spiritual things. He's using these words as stand-ins for easy, simple, basic and difficult, hard Complicated, glorious, right? Earthy and heavenly. Now, what are these heavenly things? If the earthly things are regeneration by the sovereign spirit, which is a work in man, in that sense it's earthly, what are the heavenly things? I think it's the things he goes on to talk about in the rest of the passage. And what he does is he assaults Nicodemus with these heavenly things. It's like verse, boom, one truth, another verse, boom, another truth. Another verse, boom, another church, you know, and he just hits them with these heavenly things. And they're mind-boggling. They're mind-boggling. What does he bring up? Oh, his divinity as, his eternal divinity as the Son of Man. His death as an atoning sacrifice on the cross. God's divine love for the world. The provision of salvation because of his divine love. Faith in Jesus Christ as the only hope for eternal life, and man's responsibility if he should willfully reject Jesus Christ. I mean, okay, now we're getting down into some serious doctrine. Each of those verses, each of the verses starting at um, <clears throat> verse 14, could be a month of sermons. Briefly, though, let me comment on verses 13 through 17. So the first divine truth or heavenly truth, no one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is saying nothing less than what John has already written about in his first chapter, right? Jesus is no mere man. He is the eternal God. He is not of this earth but of heaven where he has eternally dwelt with his Father. He's saying, I am God. I was with God and I was God and I am God now speaking to you, Nicodemus. Uh, You thought regeneration was difficult. Think on that. God in the flesh before you. And remember that Jesus most often self-designated with this, this name, Son of Man. And it is not it's not to diminish him like he's a descendant of man or a little man. No, it's a reference to a prophecy in Daniel and points there to his eternal being and um, specifically his dominion over all things. So when he uses son of man, he's like claiming the whole universe for himself, right? Daniel 7.13, I kept looking in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So talk about a heavenly thing. Right? Nicodemus can't get regeneration right. So Jesus slaps him with his eternal presence with the ancient of days and his authority over all peoples, tribes, tongues and nations. So that's the first. And then he goes on to another heavenly thing, verses 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. This time, Jesus is telling Nicodemus that they should uh, have learned something from Moses' example. What did Moses do? Well, here's the passage that Jesus is referring to here in Numbers 21. Picking up at verse 4. Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. And the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food, no water. We loathe this miserable food. And the Lord did what? "...sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, because we spoke against the Lord and you. Intercede with us, that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard." And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the stand. And it came about that if any serpent bit any man, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Just as the lifting up of that serpent in the wilderness led to the salvation of the people, at least physically, right? They were delivered from poisonous snakes. So now looking to Jesus being lifted up on the cross will lead to the true salvation of God's people. Jesus is revealing to Nicodemus here this heavenly thing which is nothing less than his own crucifixion. Nicodemus and the other Pharisees had a false conception of what the Messiah would be and do when he came. They probably expected a physical deliverance and a political triumph right, over earthly enemies. That will come when Jesus returns. But before then, the work of the Messiah was to die to save his people. And to save them from what? From their sins. Jesus came, therefore, to suffer and to die, to offer himself a sacrifice. That is another heavenly lesson that Nicodemus had missed from the scriptures, The illustration Jesus uses to speak of his crucifixion is potent. Ryle Ryle makes these points on on the use of the the image of the serpent. He says, one, the people are dying from the poison of serpent bites, just as man is dying from the poisonous poisonous effects of sin. Right? There's a simple analogy. Two, as the serpent of brass was lifted up in the sight of all so Christ was to be lifted up on the cross publicly in the sight of the whole nation at Passover. Three, as the serpent lifted up on the pole was an image of the very thing which was poisoning the Israelites, even so Christ had in himself no sin and yet was made and crucified in the likeness of sinful flesh. He became sin, right? Poisonous snake, Jesus as the dregs of sin. Fourth, as the one way by which Israelites obtained relief from the brazen serpent was by looking at it, so the one way to benefit from Jesus is to look to Him by faith, to look to Him. And so there was power in that, that brass serpent. We could think of that as an earthly truth, but there is forgiveness of sin. By looking to Jesus Christ in faith, which is a heavenly truth that will enliven the hearts of men through all eternity. That will be what makes our hearts beat with joy through all eternity, saved from sins. As we look upon the wounds of Jesus Christ. Jesus, therefore, is, exal- is, is assaulting again Nicodemus with the very core doctrines of his work. Note verse 15, it teaches this glorious truth. Because the Son of Man was lifted up on the cross, whoever believes will in Him have eternal life. The command of Scripture is that you believe. Right? That you believe. That you believe what is written here is more true than than the, the, the wood of the pew behind your back. The command of Scripture is that you believe. The reality is that only those who are given faith as a gift of God will believe. And then the next heavenly thing is verses 16 and 17. We could almost quote these verbatim, even if we haven't spent much of our times studying Scripture. Uh, remember back in the 70s and 80s when John 3.16 signs were held up behind the backstop of baseball ga- television broadcasts of baseball games. You saw those signs all the time. This verse has been used by evangelicals to call people to faith in Jesus Christ. Of course, the evangelicals have, have severed it from the first part of John 3 and the immediately following verses of John 3. And so they hold that it is not God who gives faith, but that it is the one thing man must do of his own volition. Right, Believe, that's your work to do, and then God will recompense you. For that, They proclaim that man mustn't do works, but that he must only believe. But what the Apostle John has taught us up to this point is that man can't believe unless God works. It is not by the will of the flesh, but by the will of God that anyone believes. So though this clearly is a call to believe, that is what it is. Let's not cut God out of the picture in how that happens. The reason evangelicals like to cut God out of the picture and say that man has to do this one thing, believe, is that they they think that love can't be forced. Love can't be forced. That love mustn't ever be coerced. right? In a sense, that would be true if there was any good in man. Right? That the vestiges of good in man should rise up to God and love him of, of, uh, by their own volition. If there was any capacity to love prior to his new birth, that would make sense, but man is dead. Man cannot love God. Man is dead, cannot coax up enough. Uh, up his faith without God's interceding without his intervention man is dead and is not interested in Jesus and these heavenly things he may be interested in the externals of religion he may look like he knows Jesus but if he has not had the spirit working in him he does not know those things there are many verses such as this one that give a general call to people to believe right It's just a general call. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But there are equally as many verses that attribute faith to God. The preeminent example is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That makes it sound as if you did it, right? By grace you have been saved through faith. You did that. You get credit. Ah, not so fast. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, the faith is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Do you see the two sides of the coin there? The first phrase seems to say that faith is the cause of our salvation, but then the next phrase takes that away by saying that faith has been given to us as a gift from God. So here's how we must understand it. Faith is the instrument that God uses in his sovereign effectual calling. But that faith is not the achievement of the man by the use of his intellect, by the use of his talent, by the use of his innate goodness. There isn't any. Right? No, that faith has been given to him as a gift. And you don't pay for gifts. You don't earn gifts. Gifts aren't gifts if you pay for them. So what's the point of that? that man wouldn't be able to boast, right? To take credit for anything that belongs to God alone. God gets all the glory, dear brothers and sisters, right? God gets all the glory. So with that, per, that preface, here's what Jesus next says to Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send The Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. What is heavenly about that doctrine? What correction does this make, think, to Pharisee Nicodemus's wrong interpretations of the Old Testament? The first thing is this Nicodemus likely thought that the salvation the Messiah would bring would be confined to Israel. That's all he cared about, right? He thought that the Messiah would come and they would become this incredible kingdom and be protected by his incredible wisdom and it would be confined to Israel. But he had missed that the Old Testament teaches that the Messiah would redeem the world. Messiah would redeem even the Gentiles. In fact, Abraham was told this, right? I mean, right from the start, the Gentiles are incorporated. And the Apostle Paul makes this case in Romans 15, therefore accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy as it is written. And then he gives these quotes from the Old Testament that teach about the Gentiles being included. Therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. Again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And again, Isaiah says, there shall come the root of Jesse and he who rises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. All quotes that Nicodemus should have been familiar with. This is why Jesus, in John 3.16, speaks of the world. That's why he speaks of the world. It is Jews and Gentiles. Not merely Jews, Jews, but the whole world, the world of the Gentiles will be brought near to God by Christ's work. God's redeeming love is not merely confined to the nation Israel, but his love goes out to all who are truly Israel. Right, the church, which is made up of peoples from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And this truth undoubtedly would blow the mind of Nicodemus, who would have finally tuned his disdain, hatred, and disgust of the Gentiles. Now stop and think for a moment, not as a Calvinist, not as a systematic theologian, not as an apologist. Here's the truth. God loves mankind. God loves mankind. He does not, he, I mean, he does so even to the extent that he would send his son to die for miserable, God-hating, sinful men. Calvin says, Christ brought life because the Heavenly Father loves the human race and wishes that they should not perish. It is, therefore, God's character to be merciful. It is God's character to be gracious. Right? It is purely His love. It is purely His love. Because He is love, that he provided his son as the necessary sacrifice for a sinner. It is not because he is is logical that he sent his son. It's not because he's committed to some concept that serves as a law that obligates him to act in this manner. It is not because he is unconcerned about sin and devoid of anger and wrath. It's not because... He pities mankind that he sent his son. It is his love. It is because he loves. He is love. It is because he is love that that he brought about his son's conception by the Holy Spirit, that the son was born, that he lived under the law, that he died. Because he is love, he made for his creatures a way of obedience obtaining eternal life, because he's love. Christ came into the world in consequence of the love of God. That's important. That That is hugely important. God's love is first and primary, right? And it's the cause of Christ's coming. We should not say That what Christ did is why God loves us. That's to get the cart before the horse. More properly, God loved us and the result of that love is Christ's glorious, humiliating work for people who hated, hated God. Now the son came at the command of his father, not as our text says, to condemn the world, but rather that the world might be saved through him. God is love, and because he is love, there exists eternal life for those who believe in Christ. Mankind stood condemned already. And it was God's love that brought Christ's glorious salvation. Again, who is it that will enjoy eternal life? Who is it that will enjoy eternal life? What this passage says is, it is those who believe in him. Those are the ones who will enjoy eternal life, those who believe in him. They are the ones who will not be condemned to hell and everlasting punishment. The faithless should have no hope that they will be saved because God only saves those who believe. That's what this passage teaches. Now, let me borrow again from Ryle to bring this home. Here's what Ryle says. He says, God loves all the world. But God will save none in the world who refuse to believe in his only begotten Son. For, any, for another thing, it shows us the great point to which every Christian should direct his attention. He must see to it that he believes on Christ. It is mere waste of time to be constantly asking ourselves whether God loves us. Now try to pick up what he's, what he's putting down here. He's saying, you have to be sure you believe. That's what you need to be concerned with. And then he's going to say, he's going to give a few examples of what that isn't. It is mere waste of time to be constantly asking ourselves whether God loves us. Does God love me? What is the love of God like? What, you know, um, to approach it as as a concept, right? And whether Christ died for us. And it argues gross ignorance of Scripture to trouble ourselves with such questions. The Bible never tells men to look at these questions, but simply commands them to believe. Salvation, it always teaches, does not turn on the point, did Christ die for me? But on the point, do I believe in Christ? If men do not have eternal life, it is never because God did not love them or because Christ was not given for them, but because they do not believe on Christ. Christ's death is sufficient to save every man, right? Efficient for those that he will save, sufficient for all men. God has loved all mankind, right? How does God love all mankind? Well, the rain falls on the just and the unjust, right? He gave every man life and breath. Now, what Ryle said there, that's challenging to crunchy Calvinists who like to engineer God's love, right? Who like to, to make God submit to our principles and our laws. We like the theoretical questions, we shy away from anything that might smack of putting the cause of salvation in man's hands, but the fact of the matter is, is that this passage and many others call men to believe in Jesus Christ. Last week I told you that you cannot come to faith without the Spirit at work in you giving new birth, and this week I tell you, you must put your faith in Jesus Christ, and those who do not have faith will not be saved. Here's some help from Scottish pastor, John Duncan. Here's what he says. Now, you guys are smart. You can get this. Listen to what I'm saying. You'll get it, Um, but it's well said. Here's what he says. As long as I am told that I must come to God and that I can come, I am left to suppose that some good thing or some power of good remains in me. If I'm told to come and that you can come, you can do it. Well, then, then I, you know, I keep, I, there must be some power in me. I arrogate to myself that which belongs to God. The creature is exalted and God is robbed of his glory. If, on the other hand, I am told that I cannot come to God, but not also that I must come, right? So you can't come and um, don't even try. I'm left to rest contented at a distance from God. I am not responsible for my rebellion. And God, Jehovah's, is not my God. But, okay, so both of those are bad, right? You don't want to do either of those things. But if we preach that sinners cannot come and yet must come, then is the honor of God vindicated and the sinner is shut up. Man must be so shut up that he must come to Christ and yet know that he can't. He must be told to come to Christ or he will look to another when there is no other to whom he may come. He must be told that he cannot come or he will look to himself. This is the gospel vice. and So he says this is the vice that we get in. It's two sides squeezing us. This is the gospel vice to shut up men to faith. Some grasp at one limb of the vice, one side, and some at the other, leaving the sinner open. But when a man is shut up so that he must and cannot, he is shut up to faith. God is declared to be Jehovah, and the sinner is made willing to be saved by him in his own way as sovereign in his grace. This is the tension of scripture, is it not? This is the tension of John 3. You can't, unless the Spirit works, believe now before it's too late. And if you leave either of those off, then you leave a man without hope, right? You can't and you mustn't come. He just wanders off and starts worshiping trees, right? On the other hand, you know, the other side of the equation is, you know, you you can and you must And he's like, yeah, I'm pretty good. God owes me something. God is in my debt. But Scripture doesn't go there. Scripture doesn't doesn't make either error. Scripture holds these truths in tension because that is truth. There exists a Savior. Let me close here. There exists a Savior. He is proof of God's love. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but will be given eternal life. And so come to Jesus. Rest in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Believe that what is written about this Jesus in the Scriptures is reality. It is a good message. right? There is no reason for you to be hard in heart and to resist faith. It is only your pride that would keep you from swimming in the sea of God's love that is demonstrated in the death of his Son. It's only your pride that would keep you from from the joy of that. God is a friend of sinners, and if you have hope in Him, you will never, ever, ever be disappointed. You will never be disappointed.